Welcome to another great message by Pastor Adrian Wright, lead pastor at Anchor Church. We pray this message will encourage, inspire, and transform your life. Our heart is to share the hope of Jesus with our city and nation. For me to be able to share the gospel with you today, to be able to share from the scriptures, one of the things about our church is that we absolutely love the Bible. We love the scriptures. We love how it reveals Jesus to us. A lot of people think that the Bible is pointing to you and telling you how you're supposed to fix your life, but really the Bible is pointing you to Jesus. The Bible knows that you already can't, it already knows you can't fix your life. It already knows that, that you're going to fall short in that area. And so really, it's showing you examples of many people that couldn't fix their lives, but found hope in Jesus. And so we love how going through the scriptures informs us of the grace of God, our identity in Jesus, the powerful working of God that works in us, that enables us to lead lives that we would never have been able to lead without God's grace. And to achieve and attain to things that we could never have even hoped for if it wasn't for the grace of God that's present. And so we're doing a series at the moment in the prison letters. We started this last year working through the letters that Paul wrote in prison when he was in Rome. And, uh, and, and we've, we're now at the final book in that series, uh, which is the book of Colossians. So if you have your Bibles here with you this morning... You can turn to the book of Colossians, um, and uh, if you don't have a Bible, just a reminder that we've got some Bibles that we're now selling at the back. We're trying to do them as inexpensively as possible so that everybody can have a Bible and, uh, and can be following along with us in the Scriptures, can be uh, you know, highlighting and making notes and, and, uh, and just getting the Word, not just into your mind, but into your heart, into your spirit. I thought that we'd organize some Bibles and uh, we did this a few weeks ago. We got a few Bibles and we ended up selling like 50 Bibles in three weeks. And so um, we're, we're getting new stock. Every week when I walk into the bookstore, the people are like, no ways, you cannot be back again. Um, and so if you, if you have your Bible, uh, we're going to be in Colossians. We're going to be around the end of Colossians 1 and the beginning of Colossians 2 today. But this is a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Colossae. And it's a church that Paul himself didn't start. He hears about this church and he knows about the church, even though he is unable to visit them. And now he's imprisoned in Rome. And the person who God used to establish that church and is leading that church is a man by the name of Epaphras. And Epaphras goes and visits Paul and tells him about his church, the church in Colossae and, 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 and the Colossian people. And Paul is overjoyed to hear about their faith. He knows that their faith is genuine. You know, he sits with Epaphras and Epaphras says, man, these people believe in God. They genuinely have an authentic trust in God as their Savior and Jesus as their Savior. And Paul says, well, how do you know? How do you know that those people have a genuine faith? How do you know that the confession of faith that they made was ratified by the faith that they had in their hearts? How can you, how can you tell? And he says, well, they love God. They're in love with Jesus. They're trusting in Him wholeheartedly. And they love people. They love each other. They're walking in unity. And that is just the, the fruit that comes out of genuinely receiving Jesus in your life. It doesn't make you more religious. It doesn't make you more principled necessarily. It doesn't make you, you know, any other kind of version of human wisdom. No, it actually just makes you totally in love with Jesus. And it makes you love people. It causes you to love each other, especially those that are, that are part of the same family, the, the church family. And so, he writes a letter to them firstly saying, I'm so excited to hear that you have genuine faith. 
that you love God and that you love each other. And then he speaks into some of the cultural pressures that they were facing in the city of Colossae. And the first one was that this is a city that's, that's come to Christ, that, that these people have come to know Jesus in a Greco-Roman context where there was a plethora of different idols and gods that were worshipped. There was this polytheistic mysticism where anything that you needed, you need to, to appease a certain God in order to receive it. And so if you wanted to be successful in your career, you needed to appease a certain God in order to receive success. If you wanted a healthy family, you needed to appease a certain God in order to receive health in your family. If you wanted protection, you needed to appease a certain God. And so they're facing this temptation to just make Jesus another one of the gods that they're trying to appease, another one that they've added to the list. And so Paul, as he goes into Colossians 2, he starts writing to them and he, and, he, and he says in Colossians 1, he writes this Messiah poem where he says, you gotta know that the God that we worship is not just another God. It's not an idol. He's not part of mythology. He's not just some religious idea. He's not a part of some philosophy or some human wisdom. No, this is the creator of heaven and earth. This is the one in whom all things were created and all things are held together. He is the one. He is the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And in him, everything is held together. You're coming to the, the true God. He says, don't just add him to the list. And then he goes into that second part, which is, which is trying to just appease God in order to receive something from him. And, and this is what leads us into a, a severe form of, of, of legalism. And the Jewish Christians that were in that area said, oh, it's great that you have faith in Jesus, but you know, there's some more steps that you have to take. You've got to appease that God. If you want to have real faith, genuine faith, then what you should do is, men, you should get circumcised so that you can truly show that you are a part of the covenant of God. And Paul writes to them and he says, do not let anybody disqualify you. Do not let anybody put an extra onto Jesus. It's not Jesus plus, but it is all found in him. And so he makes much of Christ. And that's the role of the church. That's our message to the world is to make much of Christ, is to preach Jesus. It's him we preach so that people will know that simply by putting your faith in the person Jesus, in the Savior that God sent, the Son of God who died for all of us, we have absolutely everything that we need. We don't need to bend to polytheistic mysticism or to the Judaizers with their legalism. No, we can just find our full satisfaction, our wholeness, our holiness, our righteousness in Jesus and Jesus alone. And so it's all about Jesus. And this is what he is. He is writing this letter knowing that that time in prison might likely lead or end in his own death. He doesn't think he'll ever get to the church in Colossae to speak to them face to face. And so what is his parting message to them? Hold fast to Jesus. Hold fast to Jesus. Don't put your hope in anything else. This is how you deal with the pressure around you. Everything you need is found in Jesus. Don't walk in your own strength, but by the grace of God and the strength of his glorious might. And that really is applied to our lives in every area. The resurrected Jesus is present in every area of your life. A lot of times people think that Christianity is like finding a set of keys and the Bible gives us 
the location of those keys. And then when you need a certain thing from God, then you need to find a certain key, that, that, you know, that silver bullet, that verse that you're going to stick up on your wall and, and confess of your life. And like that verse is the key. But Christianity isn't about finding many keys to many problems. It's about finding one key that opens every door. It's a master key. And it's Jesus. He is, in Him, all the promises of God are yes and amen. He is our righteousness, our fulfillment, our satisfaction. He's everything that we need. We, all find, we find all of it in the one key that is Jesus. Even in interpreting the Bible, the theological term is the hermeneutical key. You don't understand the Bible until you understand Jesus. When you get Jesus, you understand everything else. It all fits together. And so here at the beginning of chapter 2, Paul writes in Colossians 2 verse 1, he says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. He, he loves this church. He cares for this church. He, he wants them to know the things that are important for them to know. And for those at Laodicea and for all those who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding. All the riches of full assurance. I want to tell you today that, that having full assurance in what it is that God has accomplished for you uh, is accompanied by riches, by wealth, by spiritual blessing. When we have full assurance of who we are in Jesus, man, it, it, it's, it's weighty. It's, it blesses us. It changes things. There are all these riches locked up in the full assurance, not, not walking insecurely with God. Not, you you want to know what the source of insecurity is in your life? It's the mirror. It's when you look into, into, your, into the mirror, into your own eyes, and you think, do I measure up? Can I measure up? Do I have what it takes? You will have an insecure walk with God as long as you are looking in the mirror, as long as you're looking at yourself. But when we look to Jesus, when we fix our eyes on him, both the author and the finisher of our faith, all of a sudden there is a confidence that comes that's beyond us, that's beyond our own ability. When we reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, when you understand all of God's mystery, what is God's mystery? Which is Christ. It's Jesus in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You unlock the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in every area of your life, the moment you understand who Jesus is. So today, I want to share a message with you entitled, All the Treasures. All the Treasures. And if I had a subtitle today, it would be Wisdom in the Crap House. Wisdom in the Crap House. That's a biblical term. And so I'm going to um, get to that in a moment. But if you're writing notes down, that would be my subtitle. And I want to open on that note with... Uh, with a German reformer and theologian that I mentioned last week, uh, a man by the name of Martin Luther, the man who rediscovered God and changed the world, who, who understood that the church had lost sight of the gospel, had started preaching a message that excluded Jesus and put the onus of, of righteousness on the person as opposed, to, as opposed to the Christ, as opposed to trusting in Jesus. And, 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 and he uh, is known for his defiance of the Roman Catholic Church that led to one of the greatest revolutions in history back in the 1500s. And, 
1517. And by the way, we've got these books. Um, a few people ordered last week. I've got as many as were in stock. There are more that they've ordered for us. Unfortunately, the price has gone up a little bit now because of the, the RAND exchange rate. Um, but if you want one of these books, we can get it for you. Uh, so you can go and order at, at the info desk after the service. Um, but this really tells us about the life of Martin Luther. But that, I'm not as, as interested in that as I am in the journey of a person that is caught up trying to please God, because this was me for many years, and then discovers that in Christ, God has already given us the ability to please Him. God has already made, without faith, it's impossible to please God. It's impossible to please Him without faith. And so in 1517, Martin Luther wrote, if, God, if our God in this life, and in German it's in das Scheißhaus, which if you're not able to translate means in this crap house. There's a better word for it, but I can't say it in church. Has given us such noble gifts. What will happen in that eternal life where everything will be perfect and delightful? If in this shice house, we can experience the goodness of God and the redemption of God and the family of God and the love of God in the way that we're able to receive it through Jesus. How much more have we got to look forward to in the eternal life where everything is perfect and delightful? Luther was a German man who was, one thing we know about German people, Carsten here, he knows, he knows, Mr. Heinrichsen, he knows about about the preciseness and the intensity sometimes of the German people. And, 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 and he longed to be faithful to the Bible. He wanted to be faithful to everything it called a Christian to be and a Christian life to look like. And so he nearly killed himself trying to please God. He fasted so often and so severely that he developed intestinal problems. He, he wouldn't eat, he wouldn't sleep, he would pray day and night. He was just simply trying to appease God to the point where he was frail and sickly as a result. Unlike most other people who just out of trying to appease their conscience would justify their sins and, 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 and do their best to try and get a good night's rest, Martin Luther was honest about his sin. He knew that he wasn't righteous. And so he talks about Paul's letter to the Romans in Romans 1 verse 7 that says that righteousness comes from faith for faith and that the righteous shall live by faith. And he hated that verse. In fact, he says, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners because he knew he was unrighteous. And so it was an issue for him that he wrestled with and he, he tried his best to, to become what God wanted him to be. But when he looked at the Bible and when he was honest about his own life, he concluded that he was not someone capable of living faithfully as a Christian. And so he hated the word righteousness. It's like running into a wall over and over again and then realizing that you are that wall. That what you're running into is the end of yourself and your own ability and your own goodness. And it's a demoralizing place to be. This is where Martin Luther was. Then one day early in 1517, he had what was known as the cloaca experience. Cloaca is the Latin term for sewer. But in Martin Luther's time, it meant outhouse or, or literally toilet. And so he's 
wrestling with Romans 1 verse 7, and where he was stationed at that time was the Black Cloister in Wittenberg in Germany. And in that cloister, there was a tower known as the Cloaca Tower, because in the bottom of this tower, it had an outhouse, it had a toilet. And so Martin Luther, whose heated study was in the top of this Cloaca Tower, we're not 100% sure where he got this revelation, whether it was while he was in the study, but what he says, and we know he had a little bit of a, a knack for, to be witty and to, and to use hyperbole as a way to, to uh, bring his point across. But the way he describes the revelation of grace that he received that ultimately led to one of the greatest revolutions in human history in German says this, Dieser Kunst hat mir der Spiritus Santis auf das Kloake eingeben, which translated to English is, the Holy Spirit gave me this art on the toilet. The Holy Spirit brought me this revelation in the crap house. He uses the word alf, which is upon the toilet. Martin Luther, you wanted this, as I would not say this. If I had a revelation from God, I would probably say something along the lines of, I know of a man whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. But this man was transported into the third heavens, and there he received revelations from God. You know how Paul talks about himself sometimes in the third person. Martin Luther says, now I received this revelation of grace while I was on the toilet. And he wants that to be known because it's the perfect illustration of what God did for us. He sent his perfect infinite, omniscient, glorious Son, the creator of heaven and earth, to us. Not on a golden cloud, not on a chariot of fire, not in some austere way, but, but born in a filthy cattle stall, stinking of dung. Luther realized that this was the essence of the gospel. Jesus didn't come halfway into our world he didn't float in a holy way above the earth so as not to be defiled by anything he would come into contact with. No, he came all the way down, all the way into the foul dregs of our broken humanity. This holy and loving God dared to touch our lifeless and rotten essence, knowing that we're not just in need of a little help but that we are fatally befouled with death and toxic filth requiring total redemption. We, we don't need help, church. We need life. We need resurrection. We don't need self-help. We don't need good advice. People are not living broken and sinful lives because they don't know what's right and they just need somebody to tell them. No, they're living broken lives because they're dead because they don't have the life of Christ in them. They don't need a little bit of help. They need total redemption. And if they don't realize, if we don't realize that we need eternal life from the hand of God, then we remain in our sins and eternally dead. This is the gospel. The Bible says, if it is of grace, then let it be of grace, because then it's all of grace. But if it is of works, then it must be all of works. In other words, you, if, you, if you start working for grace, it's no longer grace, but a wage. 
So let God save you. Let his grace apply to your life. Let him be everything. Put your total hope for your total redemption that you so desperately need, not in your own ability to be good, not in confidence in the flesh, but put it in Jesus. He is the only one that can save us. And so Jesus meets us, not in a palace, not in some bejeweled, adorned cathedral somewhere on a hill, but he meets us on the cloaca. He meets us where all of our Human efforts are in German known as Scheiße. <laughs> if you need a translation, just go and speak to Carsten after the service. He'll help you understand. Romans 10 verse 1 to 4 says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, for those religious people, those Pharisees that put all their hope in their own ability to follow rules and, and laws and, and, to, and to stand on their own righteousness. He says, I pray that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. They're zealous about the things of God, but not according to knowledge. The Bible says that that all the knowledge, all the treasures of knowledge are in Jesus. And when you don't include Jesus in the equation, you're, you might be zealous, but you're wrong. You might be passionate, but you're passionately wrong. It's not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. They were so intent on establishing their, themselves as righteous people in their own ability that they did not submit to the righteousness that comes from God by grace. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Jesus fulfilled the law, God's holy law, on our behalf so that in Him we are righteous. We fulfilled the law in Christ through faith in Him. And so Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to every person who believes. Righteousness apart from the law, the Bible says, has now been revealed to us. Isaiah 64 verse 6 says, all of us, this is without, this is in our own righteousness. This is as long as we'll depend on our own abilities. Isaiah 64 6 says, all of us have become like something unclean. And all our righteous acts are like a polluted garment like filthy rags, shiza. That's what, that's what our righteous acts are. They don't carry any weight. So this is what Martin Luther rediscovered, that the, that the church had begun to put the emphasis on people's ability to meet certain requirements as opposed to everything that Jesus had accomplished. And he realized it's not about trying harder, but, by, but about putting your total weight in the grace of God, which comes by faith in Jesus. And that is the only way for us to reconfigure and realign our, our lives to live in wisdom and understanding. You want to live in wisdom? You want to walk in understanding in every area of your life? You want, you want God's presence to shine through in every area, every activity, every part of your life? 
You only find it when you do it in the power of his might. When you trust in Jesus, when you include him in that area of your life, in every area of your life. And one of the first things that this does for us, which is a, a human experience we all grapple with, one of the first things that, that it informs, where it brings wisdom and understanding, is the area of suffering, of hardship, of heartache. So what it does is, putting your faith in Jesus redefines suffering. James says, consider it all joy when you suffer, when you face trial. So we've literally redefined joy or redefined suffering as joy, as hopeful, as something to be grateful for, as something to thank God for. Why? Because Jesus is involved in your journey even when you suffer, even when you face hard things, even when you're going through difficulties, even when you fail. It is just another opportunity for the Holy Spirit to develop Christ in you. It's another opportunity for you to lean your weight into Christ and in that process, become more faithfully dependent on Him. And you become more like Jesus through those, those difficult moments. Paul writes in Colossians 1.24, he says, Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. I rejoice, I thank God I get to suffer for your sake. And in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. And what he's saying there is, he says, I get to participate in the story of Jesus. I get to suffer for the church in the same way that Jesus came down and suffered and died for the church. I get to give my life for the same thing that Jesus gave his life for. And I get to extend the suffering of Jesus through my own life for the sake of every believer. What a privilege. What a privilege that we get to represent Christ and have the honor of suffering at times for the sake of the gospel so that Christ may be fully formed in others. We are participating in the story of Jesus. If he suffered in order to serve, then we can suffer in order to serve as well. It's a privilege for us to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. What is this mystery? To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you. That's the mystery, church. We get to suffer for that message. We get to, we get to be persecuted for that message. We get to serve and, and wake up early and build church and expand the kingdom for the sake of that message. What are we trying to get every person, not just the Jews living in Israel, but every, every Gentile nation, the Greeks and the Romans and, and the Africans and the Asians and the South Americans and every part person in every part of the world. What do we want them to know? That you too can have Christ in you, the hope of glory. That Christ can be fully formed in you. You're just, a, you're just an average, normal person, maybe here from the city of Johannesburg or the surrounding provinces in this nation or surrounding countries. But here's the point. It doesn't matter where you're from. All of us can have Christ in us, the hope of glory. And that's what we're passionate about sharing. Paul rejoices at this privilege to suffer for the sake of seeing Christ fully formed in others. 
That's why he says in Colossians 1, verse 28 to 29, he says, Him we proclaim. It's Jesus we preach. Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's our goal. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So we can struggle, we can toil, and we can work. But we don't do any of those things in order to become righteous. We do those things to help others understand that they are already righteous in Christ. That if they put their faith in Jesus, they have become righteousness. So people are not, we should not be striving to be accepted by God, but to help others understand that in Christ they can be accepted. And this is a revolutionary message. This is a countercultural message. This, this is what separates the message of the gospel and the message of Jesus from every other religion. And as I've often said before, including Christianity, as far as it's just another program by which we're trying to be good enough for God. This is not a program. It's a faith in a person. And this is what shook the foundations of religion in Jesus' time, in Martin Luther's time, and still in our time today. It's in this truth, Colossians 2, 2 to 3, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. See, once you put your faith in Jesus and you and you really begin to trust in who he is, you're able to correctly frame the world. You understand who God is. You understand his nature and his character. You understand the purpose of humanity. You understand the origin of evil and why we have so much evil in our world and so much brokenness in our human experience. You understand man's need for redemption, the finished work of the cross, the resurrected life, the truth about how God has put us together including our need for community and family and purpose and, and, and human sexuality and morality and parenting and purpose and fun and all of those desires and things that we have, the wisdom for all of it are found not in human endeavor, not in human wisdom or empty philosophy, but in a person called Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And he brings us that wisdom, that level of understanding and clarity in the crap house. He brings it to us on the toilet, in the midst of our mess and our brokenness and our failures and our shortcomings and our imperfections. And so aren't you relieved this morning, excuse me for using that term, it's wrong in the context, but, <laughs> but aren't you relieved this morning that you can be authentically you, that you can be honest and know that your path to becoming more like Jesus isn't based on you trying harder to be better, but based on God's work within you, the miracle of His grace. I know I need Jesus. I mean, I'm under no illusion that I need Jesus. And, and when I need to be better, the one thing I immediately say is, God, help me be better. Help me be a better dad. 
Help me be a better husband. Help me be a better pastor. Help me be better in traffic. Help me be better next to the rugby field when I'm watching my boys play rugby. Help me be better. In every, I know I need Jesus. And so if people come to me and, and they have in the past and they say, you fall short in this area. We've been watching you. I've had people, I've had people text me. I've watched you for a while. Creepy as heck, but okay. <laughs> and you're not a true pastor. Or you don't have this heart. Or I watched how you interacted on that occasion. And I can say to you that this is how you fall short. And I say, you know what? You don't know the half of it. You don't know the half of how I fall short. You don't know the half of how many times I've messed up. You don't know the half of, of how many struggles and thoughts and, uh, and, and imperfections I have to deal with on a daily basis. But that's not what my hope is in. Thank you for highlighting how much more I need Jesus. This is why we can have confidence before God. Not because we're good enough, but because God is with us and he is gracious. So Paul writes to the church in verse 4. He says, I say this to you. I'm, I'm telling you this. I'm telling you that you have everything that you need in Jesus in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. You see, if I got up here today and I said, let me give you 10 steps to being a better person. Let me give you five steps to honoring God more faithfully in your life. You would be able to write those things down and you would amen and you would agree and you would say, yes, that's what I need. Thank you, pastor, for telling me the truth. And you would go out and you would not live them. In fact, they would just be another occasion for failure. Because as long as it's you trying to live in the strength of plausible arguments, things that seem wise, but do not carry the power of God with them, then you are not going to be able to fulfill them. Paul says, though I'm absent in body, I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. It's the firmness of our faith in Jesus. There are so many things that would seem like good, plausible arguments that seem wise, but do not hold fast to Jesus. And so they become a religion unto itself. It becomes a religion unto itself or a glorified version of self-help. That's why Paul writes in verse 7, he says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. As you received Him, walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So if you think back to the moment where you received Jesus, if you are one of those people here today that at a point in your life made a confession of faith, you realized that you were a sinner, that you had fallen short of the glory of God, that you needed salvation, and you confessed that need in faith that God would save you. If you think back to that moment, and if that's something that you've never done, I'll give you an opportunity to do that in a few minutes. But if you think back to that moment where you gave your life to Jesus and knew that you needed Him, I'm willing to bet that it was in a moment where you realized your own brokenness. It was a broken moment for you that became a glorious moment. It was in that moment you realized, I'm not good enough. I don't measure up. I can't try hard enough. I, I've tried so many times. I've broken so many promises. I don't even believe the promises I make to God anymore. 
Jesus, I need you. Paul says, church, if that's how you received him, then that's how you walk in him. There's too many versions of the gospel out there which are really perversions of the gospel that says, no, Jesus did the initial work, but now it's up to you. And the gospel says, no, it's still the presence of him in whom we have all wisdom and knowledge. It's still in Jesus. So hold fast to him. Walk in him. Be rooted in him and built up in him and established in the faith. Even when it comes to God working in your life miraculously, the Bible says, how did you receive the Holy Spirit? And how did he first work miracles amongst you? Was it by your keeping of the law or was it by grace? So even God's presence and miraculous power is not in our lives because we've worked hard enough to establish them there, but because we've believed in Jesus, because of that grace. And that gives a heart full of gratitude, complete dependence upon Jesus. And this liberates us to live fearlessly for Christ. That confidence that maybe you've been lacking, can I trust God? Can I believe for a miracle? Can I ask Him to help me when I fail? Can I turn to Him when I've sinned? When I've fallen short? When you understand the gospel, you're able to live fearlessly for Christ. This past week, I was watching my boys play a rugby game. And um, Eli was playing for his, his first team side. And I, just so you know, endeavor to be one of those dads that sits quietly in the stands. And then walks up to his kid afterward and says, great game, boy. That was, I'm, I'm giving like tackle technique instructions mid-game, right? That's the, I'm, st- God, I'm st- a work in progress. And so Eli was playing this first team game against a team where, I don't know where these boys came from, but they were, some of them were my size or bigger. And we're talking about primary school rugby. And they're aggressive. I mean, they are, they are doing the dump tackles. They're, they're tackling the boys and then rubbing their heads in the ground or picking them up and dropping them down. And, and I mean, yeah, even at those moments, I'm walking next to the field. I'm going, play rugby, play rugby. You know, I'm, I'm like, I think the kids were a little afraid at, at one point. But I could see that Eli is a little apprehensive. He's a little worried and he's kind of hiding behind the pod of forwards a little too much. I told him afterwards, you're not on the field to be a professional back warmer, standing behind the players in front of you. And so at one point, his team, they regather themselves a little bit. They score a try. Eli's awaiting kickoff. I know, this is my one opportunity to say something to him while he can, I know that he can hear me. And so I walk up, I get off the stands, I walk along the field, I get to where he's standing, and I know I just got one thing I can shout out. And I shout out, Eli, no fear. No fear, Eli, make a difference. He looks at me and he nods. That team regathers the ball. They pass it to their inside center, which was by far the biggest boy on the team. And Eli dives at him, makes a high tackle, gets sent off for 10 minutes. (laughs) But the point is, I'd rather have him diving all in, making high tackles than hiding on the sideline. And it might be too much for a primary school rugby game. But let me say this. I'm not raising boys for that fight. I'm raising boys for the fight of life. 
And the biggest key to confidence and fearlessness in this life that I can ever give them is not what I shout to them next to the rugby field, but it's what I teach them from the Bible, who they are in Christ. You want to live fearlessly? You want to throw yourself into life? You want to live with reckless abandon? It comes as we begin to understand who we are in Jesus. We are not a people bullied by fear. Being manhandled by anxiety and a lack of confidence or self-doubt. We know who we are. I told my boys after the, after the game, all three boys, I says, right boys are not afraid and we make a difference. You're on that field, you make a difference. And that's how we want to live life, church. We want to make a difference. Not hiding on the sidelines. Colossians 2, 18 to 19 says, let no one disqualify you. Do not let anybody disqualify you for the prize. Insisting on asceticism, which is severe bodily discipline. It's, it's extreme piety and worship of angels going into details about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head, capital H, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. Don't let some people come and convince you that because you're not living a certain way or because you haven't fulfilled certain requirements that you are somehow disqualified. This is the plan of the enemy to undermine your faith in who you are in Christ. And I have seen it over and over and over again. Satan did it with Jesus when he took him up onto the temple and said to him, why don't you throw yourself off the temple? Because doesn't the scripture say that God would command his angels concerning you? You see, even the devil reads the Bible. And so we gotta make sure we don't read the Bible the way the devil does. He knows the scriptures. But what he uses the scriptures for, he said it to Adam and Eve. Did God really say? He uses them to try and get you to prove your faith. And so anybody that comes to you and says, if you really have faith in God, this is what you must do. Say, sorry, I know I really have faith in God because my trust is in Jesus. Two weeks ago, there was a, a man that we've become friends with. We play paddle with him on occasion. He's originally from Spain, not a believer, but he, I got a phone call from him. We became friends just playing sport and his wife had had an infection in her brain. And that infection was kind of an autoimmune thing that caused this and, and it actually produced a vulnerability in her mind that all of a sudden she became susceptible to demonic influence. And she was in high care at Four Ways Life, but she was having the most demonic encounters and dreams and waking up and screaming and, and, and just really being tormented. And I sat with him and I said, this is physiological. It is a psychosis based on the infection. The infection. But what happens is the enemy is such a coward that he would bring somebody who is now vulnerable in their minds and try and insert a demonic influence. The same way that the dad who brought his son to Jesus and said, my son has epilepsy, normal neurological, physiological issue, 
But then when he has a seizure, tries to throw him into the fire. That's the enemy. And so I went to go and see her. And she was asleep at the time. And then she woke up. And as she, she saw me, she just burst into tears. She said, I'm so glad to see you. And she started to recount some of the dreams and the visions and the things that the enemy said to her. The very first thing he told her to do. He says, if you love God, take the Bible and turn it into stone. And so she had to try hard to, in this dream, turn the Bible into stone. The next thing he said to her is, if you love God, when you wake up, you must kill your children. She has two little girls. And she woke up and she, she looked up at her husband and she says, he told me to deny you. He told me to kill our girls. She's, this is not, she's not saying, she is broken. She's in tears. And I realized the enemy will always attack the family but will always undermine faith. Oh, you have faith. Prove it. Come prove it. And that's what religion does. That's what Paul is writing to the church in Colossae about. He's saying, don't let anyone disqualify you, insisting on your piety or your severe bodily dis uh, uh, discipline or your worship of angels, going on about visions they claim they've seen, puffed up by sensuous pride, not holding fast to Jesus. So we resist that, amen? Every attempt of the enemy to prove our faith or make us test our faith. That's why 2 Corinthians 3.12 says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are very bold. Why? Because it's, it's not us. Our hope's in Jesus. And we just, we just fly in making high tackles everywhere. Speaks about Martin Luther, what he became after he had this revelation. And it speaks about him as a jovial man who loved to hang out with friends and make jokes. In fact, they say the more serious the occasion, the better the joke that Martin Luther would produce. This is the freedom that we begin to live with, that joy that comes from knowing who we are in Christ. So church, the enemy wants to bully you by pointing at your own goodness and disqualify you by accusing you according to your efforts. But Jesus meets us in our mess. And he gives us the ability to live fearlessly, wholeheartedly, consistently. To have wisdom and understanding. To bear fruit continually by holding fast to him. Because in him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And we have reached the riches of full assurance.